Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today I have a special guest. She is someone that I have met through my book, The Joyful Frugalista. And in fact, I think she's bought more copies of The Joyful Frugalista than most bookstores. And I'm serious about that. She buys them for fundraisers and all sorts of things. And she was also one of the first people to sign up for my new Six Weeks to Abundance with The Joyful Frugalista course, which starts on the 8th of June. I'm so looking forward to having her in my course. I first got in contact with Jenny Roberts when she sent me an email about a fundraiser. I think it was for a ladies' soccer evening. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. A ladies' fun day. A ladies' fun day. And she asked to buy some books, quite a few in fact. And so the story could have ended there with me getting her in contact with the publisher, except it doesn't end there. I'm delighted to welcome Jenny on here today to talk about her life and some of her Frugalista takeaways. Thank you and welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Serena, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's totally my honour. It really is. (laughs) Yeah, it's something quite new and a bit different for me, so yeah, (laughs) definitely keen. (laughs) Well, I know you obviously like my book because you've bought so many copies, But I'm wondering if you could talk about what's a key takeaway or some of the key takeaways in the book were for you. Okay, yes, very happy to. I think um, I was actually in Byron Bay and I was on holidays and we always like to go to bookstores when we're on holidays. And your book just jumped out and um, I think it was a lovely pink cover and I like the lady on the front and, and I think I just scrolled through the first couple of pages and... I just sort of connected with it and I just, I really loved it how you had a personal story right at the beginning and you could really connect with you as a writer and a person and I could, it was so easy to read. And I think it was about the third page or maybe it's the fourth page, you mentioned Brene Brown and I'm such a fan of (laughs) Brene Brown. And at that point I just thought, I'm buying this book. And then we had about three days down in Byron Bay, we are actually just staying at Clark, near Clark's Beach. I just really enjoyed the book. I was meant to be enjoying it. I was meant to be reading another book and I picked, picked your book up. <laughs> and read, I have to admit, I, did, I haven't read it all. <laughs> I read a lot of it. <laughs> I really, I just thought that there were some really good, solid principles in there and the way that you just presented it was just from your point of view and you really do connect with when people have a story and they tell their own story, I think that's the way of connection, particularly particularly with books, but, but with life generally, really. So I really liked it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. It's an interesting thing, this authenticity and storytelling. I was lucky to be chosen for a national course run by the ACT Writers' Centre in 2015. It was called Hard Copy. They ran about it over about five years before funding ran out. And it was a, a course for emerging writers. And as part of that, we had a three-day master class. And a big takeaway was feeling that, leaning into that sense of vulnerability to write what makes you blush, 
those sort of deep embarrassing things that you're a bit uncomfortable about sharing, those are those things that's often really resonates with your reader. And the other really surprising thing about that course was at the end of it, I had an opportunity for my manuscript, which then was not the joyful frugal list or anything related to frugal living, (laughs) I might add, to be reviewed by a number of literary agents and publishers. And nearly all of them said the same thing. They said, you are not in this book. And that book was actually about my experiences of giving birth in Taiwan and undergoing um, what they called Zul Yuezi, this um, month of confinement. And I was like, are you kidding? How can I not be in the book? It's like a story about me giving birth. And they're like, no, no, we actually, we don't understand why you would do this. We're not feeling with you. We don't understand your thoughts about why you would do this. So when I was writing The Joyful Frugalista, I made a conscious effort to actually share from the heart. And it is actually a divisive thing because some people pick it up expecting it to be a, this is the mathematical equation, that a five-step process that will bring you abundance and here's how to do a budget. And some people actually find that quite confronting because it's not what they Mm -hmm. expect. But yours wasn't, yours is more your story and yeah, it was very connecting. And then it went into a lot of practical stuff. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, thank you you so much for that. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And as you know, it was lovely to meet you in person when you and your family were coming through Canberra last year. And I hadn't realised until we met face-to-face how many friends we had in common or people or experiences we had in common, which was quite unexpected. Yes, in a way, I guess, because we both are from Queensland originally, so I don't know, have we actually found any friends that we actually grew, you know, through? because we went um, through uni around the same time. Yeah, I think we'll have to do a deep dive into that. <laughs> um, and then I lived in Canberra from 2000 to 2004, so we do have some connections through that time, yeah. So I did my radiology training at that time, yeah. And I, I want to... I, didn't warm to Canberra for the first six months, but then I did find it very hard to leave after four years. It really does grow on your Canberra. It's quite special. Yeah, it's, it's I guess a lot of what happens in Canberra tends to be community-based. I think we've got more, or at least before COVID-19 we did, we had more of a restaurant, mm. more of a restaurant scene now than we did, yeah. say, when I first moved to Canberra in 2000. I think some people come from bigger cities and they're used to that bright light and the buzz and the instant that they can sort of find a restaurant strip and it's sort of in their face. Mm. And when you come to Canberra, a lot of what happens is out in the suburbs. And <laughs> You have to go and um, yeah, find it and find people that tell you where to go. It's not, you're right, it's not in your face. <laughs> exactly. And so some people come and they sort of go, oh, it looks a bit drab because, as you know, we had our big building boom in the sort of 70s, 60s and 70s. So fairly retro tired looking architecture now although there are some beautiful pieces it's a bit harder to adjust but what I do like about living in Canberra a lot is the really strong community organizations and that exist and strong volunteerism and the people to people links and I've never it's sort of like a big country town I think yes yes and it's got that great bakery I don't know if silos is still going it is That's an institution, that place. <laughs> it, look, it is beautiful. I've, their chestnut and chocolate tart, I think I had <laughs> a few times. It's just yeah. amazing. <laughs> just fabulous. But since we're talking about friends, maybe I can ask, mm. is balancing aspects of a frugal lifestyle, is that hard in terms of maintaining friendship groups? 
Is it hard when you're socialising with work colleagues, with people your kids go to school with? Is that hard? Hmm. Well, I'm in a, I guess, I'm in a very lucky situation in that because I'm a doctor and my husband's a doctor, so we do, we do earn a fair amount of money. And I think I have, I don't know that I'm actually that frugal. Like we do, like if people ask us out for dinner, we'll just say yes, but that's important to us, so I guess we will go. And you really got to, like I try not to spend, we actually went to a really fancy restaurant only about, oh, gee, it was probably about two weeks just before COVID hit. It was a lovely restaurant in, in Brisbane with two friends. I think the bill was close to $350, $400. No, it might have even been more than that. I don't know. <laughs> but it was a lot. It was just the four of us. Afterwards, like, Kai and I were going, oh, that's my husband, Kai, and I were just saying, well, yes, it was really lovely, but, gee, that was a lot of money. Mm. I think um, we've actually been probably the last three, four years been entertaining a bit more at home now too and actually inviting people around to our place and cooking dinner because that's a lot cheaper and also a lot more personable and and. I don't know. Actually, my husband's the main cook. <laughs> so I don't know. That his, his, um, his meals are very good, but maybe not quite up to standard as the, <laughs> the top-notch restaurants. But uh, we do tend to have people around a bit more, I think, than what we're used to. But really, honestly, we're not. When it comes to social things, I think it's very hard to say no. You know, and I still really enjoy them too. So... I think there's some things you say, okay, I'm prepared to spend money on that and, okay, we shouldn't. And I think when it comes to friends, I just say I'll spend the money. Mm. Yeah, it, it is hard. It, it can be tricky. Yeah, but we don't tend to go out as much as maybe as what we used to. Like we'd probably go out once every three or four weeks, so it's not. I can't really remember. Isn't it funny after this, all this COVID stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, it's difficult to know what normal is going to look like after this as well, even though some restaurants and bars and clubs can reopen. Yes. It's going to be yes. with a lot of new conditions and some of them are not going to be able to reopen. It's it's difficult. Yes. I guess talking about sort of eating out and things, I've actually probably just the last six months because I've actually been off work for a while and we have had to really be careful with our budget and luckily I've got fantastic income protection but it's not anywhere near as what I used to get paid. We've actually had to be a little bit more careful. Now going to work, I actually take my lunch. I will once or twice a week go and have a coffee and actually walk across. But going and having the coffee is actually more about getting up and walking outside because... Mm. Because I'm a radiologist and I'm very well known for doing work in the dark. <laughs> it's just such a nice, you know, at morning tea time, I just love to walk outside, get a bit of, bit of vitamin D. And and now coffee, the coffee's about $4.60, set $5. But, you know, it's worth it just to get out of my dark room. So I guess I've not been buying my lunch as much as what I used to and taking my lunch and having leftovers and things like that. And that actually does add up. That would probably save, and my husband's doing the same, so we'd be saving probably at least $50 a week there, you know, just by taking our own food. Um, each or combined? Oh, 
I would say so I just so I'm working three days a week so I would yeah I'd probably be each close to each wow it's interesting because Misty Henkel who was my last podcast guest she's been on a grocery um, challenge and as you probably know because I know you listen to all the podcasts it's it's not an exam (laughs) or anything it's just I know you do Um, she's worked out that in four months she's saved $1,200 which basically pays for her family's ski trip so if you think of that $100 saving over a 48 week working week unless you work longer 48 weeks a year working year that then amounts to about $4,800 yeah wow yeah it's amazing what you can do with that amount of money isn't it (laughs) exactly I know and I know you like skiing as well so there's a ski trip (laughs) right there going back a bit because you alluded to some lifestyle changes because of time off work would you like to share a little bit more about what's happened in your life yeah I'm very blessed I've got a great life and I still do and when I was 39 so that was in 2012 I was well, I actually kind of, being medical, diagnosed myself with a multiple sclerosis. I woke up one day and I couldn't feel the temperature um, down one leg and I had pain in one leg. Being medical and being so, um, uh, just having an MRI right there, I just popped in the next day to the scanner and um, pretty much diagnosed myself. And that was probably the worst time of my life. Yeah, hands down. And I think it's really good being medical, but it's also really bad because I can I have seen so many patients with MS and I see the bad mm. ones. So so when I got it, I just thought my life was over. I have seen some terrible cases where people just go downhill very quickly and as a medical student I still remember our lecturer telling us that if you know if you get MS, it can change your personality, and that was something that was devastating for me because obviously I like my personality. <laughs> I actually, as a junior doctor, I treated with some patients with MS, and I think I was maybe I was just unlucky, but some of these patients that came in that I looked after, their family life wasn't good, and their kids didn't speak to them anymore, and to me. Ending up in a wheelchair, I can manage that. But actually ostracising your family and ostracising your kids was just, to me, it was the worst diagnosis. Mm. Interesting, like six months before I was diagnosed, I was actually sitting in the um, where I report and I said to one of my colleagues, I said, gee, I'm going to be turning 40 soon. Oh, my gosh. But, you know, the one thing about turning 40 is that my risk of getting MS isn't, you know, I won't get it. And I don't know, I must have cursed myself saying that. <laughs> so to me, MS is so different for so many different people. But for me, when I was diagnosed, it felt like that was the end of my world. I just remember sitting down and I don't pray a whole lot, but I did that day or like two days later and I just said, thank you, Lord, thank you for such a lovely life that I've had so far. And I just thought, my life would go downhill. (laughs) Luckily, it didn't, but I didn't know that. And I really just didn't cope. I didn't cope for about, I would say, almost two years. I just just went into this little, 
I don't know how to describe it, bucket of stress. Like I would function and if everyone thought I was okay, my husband knew I wasn't okay. And he's a psychiatrist, but he sent me off to see a psychiatrist. It's like how you never teach your wife or husband to drive a car, right? <laughs> yes. And slowly with time, and really it was only time. And one of the really other really, really big factors was actually giving myself a break and learning to actually become nicer to myself and to have self-compassion, which... Probably before that time, I had very little self-compassion, I don't think. You know, learning to treat myself as I do treat my very good friends and be kind to myself and just say, okay, you're not feeling well, you're allowed to have a day off or give yourself a break and actually not fighting against this diagnosis but accepting it. It was a long, it was hard for me and for some people, I think they can kind of accept things or, you know, everyone takes bad news differently. I tried to fight against my MS Mm. and I think that took me about two years to realise that, hey, it's part of me, it will always be part of me. And then once I got to that point, I think I could then, it was a lot easier, yeah. And I'm not saying it's, 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 it's actually really, I'm not saying I'm 100% better I think I feel a lot better being able to accept that and just yeah it's made a big difference it is a big thing especially when as you said you are in the medical profession you're often seeing the worst case of people coming through not just because of their condition but also they're probably anxious when they're coming through for medical treatment as well so there's all that anxiety worrying about the prognosis and so you're seeing that mental anguish as well So I was very lucky. I had very good medical treatment and I actually went and saw probably the best, in my opinion, neurologist in Australia, potentially the world, and she just specialises in MS. She does do other things as well. And I I think there's so many different neurologists and they specialise in lots of different areas, but that's her area. It's such a small world because her daughter is actually another radiologist who I happened to help get onto the training program. So I was actually, I looked after a lot of the registrars while they were training. And Jane, her daughter, came to me and said she wanted to get on the training. So I helped, she was going to get on the training program. She was great, but I just gave her a bit of guidance. So this neurologist that I was meant to go see that I'd never seen before already knew about me. Wow. <laughs> and I helped her daughter, she get on the radiology training program. So I got very good treatment. <laughs> <laughs> You've got really good karma right there. You didn't have to worry, I think, about your personality changing. You already were manifesting some form of love for other people that came back for you. You're right. That's a good point. Mm. Yeah. So it's been quite a journey and I've learned and it's almost like you need to learn. I don't know if it was like as I say I love Brene Brown and all the vulnerability and just accepting things and I don't know, I was just in this one big cloud of vulnerability for many years and we all are vulnerable and I'm still vulnerable at times but being able to accept it and being able to realise that, accept it and move on and and it just helps so much. It's just a lot easier to move forward once you accept that. Mm. 
And I know we went to the same university around about the same time and we have to do a deep dive into working out how many friends we might have in common, although I've been out of Brisbane for so long now, I'm probably completely out of date. But I know going through that system, it was all sort of top university in Queensland, University of Queensland, all that succeed, excellence, push yourself forward, get the high marks, graduate, get a great job. And that was, I guess, that was my lens through which I viewed my world. I'm assuming you had a similar lens too. And so when you've got a health diagnosis that's not favourable like you, you do, it changes everything, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah, very much. I think I didn't get into medicine straight away. I didn't get the marks that were required and I went and did a year of science and I worked so hard that year. And before many of the exams, I'd sit down, I, I would cry. Anyway, I think I worked out that every exam I cried before, I got a seven. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> I'm the top mark. And I just was so stressed. <laughs> and then eventually I, I did get very good marks that year and I got into medicine, but gee, I was stressed. And so I decided that for the six years of medicine, I would just pass. I would just enjoy myself. <laughs> every year I just I got a, a GPA of 4.5 every year. That was probably a really good experience, that one year of science where I just was so stressed. Because once you're in, they can't really kick you out. (laughs) (laughs) I remember we used to have exams. Actually, my first year of law, you would have like a 100% exam at the end of the year. Can you imagine how stressful that is? It was nuts. They don't do that anymore. But it wasn't that year. It was another year, but it was, I think, one exam for the whole, whole term, the whole semester rather than the whole year. And I sat in there. We had that opportunity. Then the exam's starting. You can read the question. The lady in front of me, she burst into uncontrollable tears and left the exam room. That was a really shaky experience because it was like, oh, you know, like you can feel that angst. You can feel that stress that's in the air. Really? And that subject, none of that has had any bearing on anything I have done in my life after then. So sometimes it is useful to put it into perspective a little bit. Which isn't yes. to say that it's not important to aim high and to do your best. Yes. Look after yourself while you're doing it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and how has your family life, in your family life, you know, how do you talk to your kids about money, about relationships, about growing up? How has your yeah. not so frugal but still kind of frugal trends plus the diagnosis, how has that affected all of that? Um, when I was diagnosed, my son, Ollie, so that's the middle one, had just started prep. So he was five or so. And my daughter was probably four and my my other boy would have been six or seven. It's not a bad age really because I know a lot of people, I think it would be harder if they were teenagers or something. We did just talk about it. They're too young to really understand. Because we'd just say, oh, mummy's tired or mummy's got pain in her leg. It's the, you know, it's the MS pain. We just, we just, we're quite open about, about it really. That was, that wasn't too bad and I found it quite a lot easier being open with them. From a point of view of growing up and being frugal, 
I'm I was very lucky. I've got great parents, and they they've always been quite frugal, really. I'm the oldest of five, and they got married when they were twenty and had no money. <laughs> actually, interestingly, they lived in Canberra for a couple of years, so I was actually born in Canberra. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Another link. I was about three when we came up to Brisbane. We just lived on the outskirts of Brisbane, and they had five kids and mum didn't work and dad had a job so they were very frugal. We went to the local public school. I didn't go to a private school because my parents couldn't afford to send me. We never I never really felt like we had no money. We just had one holiday a year we'd go up to Calanda just for a week. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great foundation I think for for me. And it's been a bit of a change, really. So actually now, so I was 17 when I went to university and I think it was I was 35 by the time I finished all my training and I started as a radiologist at the Royal. Things have changed a bit, really, because I guess my kids go to a private school. We live in a nice house now. But it's very important for me to teach the kids the value of money. Mm. They have pocket money and my daughter, who's now 12, loves to go shopping. But, gee, you'd be impressed with her, Serena. She's so frugal. <laughs> she knows where to go to get a nice shirt and when it will be on sale and she has to pay for it out of her pocket money or I might pay half, that kind of thing. We go and buy a nice pair of jeans once a year and we try and sell them on or give them on to someone else so that because she grows, she's obviously growing very quickly, they don't last that long. But she'll have one or two really nice pieces and then she will buy the rest herself. And same with the boys as well. They're not fussy about what they wear. <laughs> yeah, so they love their technology and things like that, but they do have to save up for it and they have to pay for it themselves. And now my son is 15 and he's now at the age where he could get a job. He He's potentially looking for a job. He's actually been refereeing because he's a soccer player, so he does a little bit of refereeing and things like that. We try not to pay too much. The sort of extra things, which is technology and things, they usually have to pay half just to respect and to, to realise the value of money and that it just doesn't come that easy, which I think they could See, it does come easy because we do live in a nice area now that I've been working for a while and they do go to a good school and their friends do have a lot of money. So it's in that sort of, yeah, we are in that sort of society, I guess, where some people have got a lot of money and, they, and their parents will just buy them things, yeah. I know what you mean. When I was on posting to Taiwan, a lot of the people that I knew we're incredibly wealthy, mainly contacts through the expat community, contacts through work, contacts through my Rotary Club. And I remember going to this play date where the kids had this whole floor in this expensive house just filled with their toys. Yes. And my eldest son, I think, picked something up. And he was only little at the time. I think he was only two or three to play with. And they yes. got really nasty about him playing with their toy. And I just thought, oh... I don't know that I'm that comfortable with my kids growing up yes. in this sort of environment where they're surrounded by so much stuff. Yes. It's sort of, it can lead to some false expectations, I think. Yes. Thank you, right. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. I really appreciate the time that you've taken to be on this podcast. And not only buying my book and listening to my podcast and then <laughs> rolling on my 
course. But being so open today to sharing your journey. Yes. Now, can I plug my my husband's book? Yes, please. (laughs) Thank you. So he is actually a geriatric psychiatrist and he's actually just written a book on Alzheimer's and it's probably going to be called Mind Your Brain. Q Press have actually said that they will publish it. It's coming out in January next year. It's pretty much Mind Your Brain, The Essential Guide to Dementia by Carlos Roberts. Fabulous. Thank (laughs) Thank you you so much for sharing. (laughs) Thanks, Serena. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. And myself, I'm Joseph McGrail Baitup. You've got an accentuate the positive Eliminate the negative Latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between